This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question, is there hope in the slums of the world? Now, you might have heard of the film Slumdog Millionaire, an unlikely hero emerging from the slums to go on to fame and riches. We love these rags-to-riches stories of people like fashion designer Ralph Lauren, who rose from humble beginnings to be worth billions. Apparently, Ralph Lauren literally turned rags into ties, which became the pathway to his riches. Yet today we meet someone whose story is the opposite. Someone who went from the life of the millionaire to instead to work with the poor in the world, in the slums of various cities around the world. Diana Judge was a senior global executive for Shell, at one point leading a 600-strong marketing team. But she gave that up and retired at 37 to found Break Free Expeditions, a volunteer travel organisation who works with the world's poor. And she joins us now. Please welcome Diana Judge. Live audience has given you a warm welcome, Diana. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Rob. It's great to be here. It's great that you can join us. And I noticed you have a slight accent there. Well, I noticed you had a slight accent myself, <laughs> <That's right>. actually. <laughs> so well, yes. accent, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, busted. I am from New Zealand. Uh, so it's, it's very nice to be back here in Australia. Well, it's nice that you can join us. So your story, Millionaire to Slum, tell us a bit about your story. Perhaps maybe start with the millionaire part. What's life as a high-flying senior executive like? Yeah, it's it, great. It, it, it was it was good for the time. It was, you know, it was fun. But um, I think travelling around the world, um, staying in great places, meeting lovely people, great fun. In terms of satisfaction of your soul, not so much. Um, I'm certainly getting a lot more satisfaction these days. But unfortunately, the downside of what I do these days is that I'm in the back of the plane, whereas before I used to be in the front of the plane. So I desperately miss the front of the plane. But, you know, that's that's the only drawback, I'd say. Yeah, but I have heard, though, that in the event of an accident, or if a plane crashes, the best place to be is the back of the plane. Mm, I do console myself with that. <laughs> that's right, as you're not getting business class, first class kind of service. Yeah, yeah. and that extra leg room. Yeah. So yeah. Tell, us, tell us a bit more about life as a you know high-flying executive. What would a typical week involve? Oh, a typical week, um, pretty much. Well, actually, I lived in Melbourne for about three years. Well, that's a lie. The furniture lived in Melbourne for about three years. I probably lived in Melbourne about 18 months. Um, so typical life would be in the office, working 60, 80-hour weeks, and then getting ready to jet off uh, to another place, to my global team somewhere. There were interesting moments um, used to have um, you know, bodyguards, um, just that was because the company I worked for wouldn't pay ransoms, so you just had to you know, make sure that you... Uh, Where, whereabouts was that? Whereabouts did you have the bodyguards? Um, in South Africa and in also um, some parts of North East Asia. Did anyone you know ever get nabbed? Um, not, not that I personally knew, but yes, other oil executive um, females did get kidnapped from time to time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. So it was a it was a real mix. You were never in one place um, for too long. But mm-hmm. I think I'd probably declare myself a workaholic during those years. So that was probably, while I learnt lots of skills and things, that was probably the downside of it. I probably did turn into a bit of a workaholic. So you're living this, this life, a global executive from a large multinational. Tell us then what happened. Basically what happened, I was, I was in India and I was meeting my team, um, a global team there for a meeting. Um, and on my way back to the airport, we stopped at some traffic lights. And anyone in the live audience, have you ever seen Slumdog Millionaire? 
the movie? Yeah. There's okay. A of hands go in the air. Yep. Maybe we have a, a yes. 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 <laughs> There's a couple of yeses. That, uh, hands in the air are very difficult to so translate <laughs> in radio kind of context. Yeah. Um, so there's a scene there where there's a, a young girl and she's part of a begging gang. Um, begging gang, sorry, ch- change the accent. Um, and they hand her a little baby and uh, send her out on the street. Well, that's what happened to me. I was sitting in, in my car, chauffeur-driven car, being driven to the airport, and there's um, a little girl, she would have been about eight, and she was hanging on to a baby, and she was crying her eyes out, and she was banging on my car window, and she was just saying, help me, help me, help me. And the traffic light changed, we took off. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that was one of those you know, life-defining moments and I cried all the way to the airport. So that was probably my aha moment about yep, time, to, time to let go of the, uh, the, the trappings of the corporate life. It was fun, um, you know, made, made a lot of money during that time, but yeah, that this was the moment that it was time to do something to, to help the poor. I mean, how could you not? Yeah, so that was, well, literally your slumdog millionaire kind of moment. That's right, yeah. Yes, yes. So then what happened after that? Um, so after that, it took me a little little bit of time to negotiate my retirement from the oil company that I was working for. So you retired at... 37. 37, yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah, so basically I retired, which was great. I had enough, you know, had enough uh, saved, made some good investments, had enough passive income to live okay. And really it was about, um, you know, what could, I, what could I give back? I think possibly a lot of people sacrifice themselves and, um, you know, work crazy hours and do crazy things um, for the sake of work so that they can enjoy a comfortable life. Well, I just decided I'd put a line in the sand and that's when my comfortable life would start, you know, in terms of, um, you know, doing something which was a whole lot more worthwhile than working for somebody else, you know, just doing the same thing in a different location, just running after the almighty dollar, if you want to put it that mm. way. So mm. is that, was that what motivated you to make this change? Uh, no, what actually motivated me originally when I was 17, um, I wanted to do something to help the poor, but when it came to making study choices, I didn't want to be anything useful, like a doctor or a lawyer or a nurse or a teacher. I um, to work for big oil. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, I, w- I went and uh, trained a, a, in property, so finance, construction, law and, um, and marketing. So I went into property development and then moved into the finance sector um, and then missed my hard hat and steel cap, so decided that I would get a job that I really enjoyed and it happened to be with big oil. So um, basically, yeah, did, did that for 10 years, um, rose from nothing to being a global brand manager and North American marketing director for one of the big oil companies. And then at this particular moment um, in India, that was the time of, you know what, um, remember that at 17 you wanted to do something uh, worthwhile for, for society. So, so that was the, really the defining moment. So shortly after that, I did retire. Um, yeah. So was there anything else that motivated you to kind of make this make this change? Well, I am a Christian and um, and I believe that, um, you know, looking after the interests and the widows and the poor is, is like huge. The Bible Society have gone through and highlighted in yellow the number of um, verses that there are um, relating to how God feels about looking after the interests of the widows and the poor and justice, and it's in the thousands. Mm. So it's a very uh, dear topic to God and one that um, I might have ignored, um, you know, in the past because you're just so focused on life. Um, and I mean, so is, for it, me, is it easy to ignore when you're in this, you know, bodyguards, fast planes, fast cars, etc. Like, is it easy to kind of ignore those things? I think I think so. Absolutely, you just get caught up in the in the thing of life and the next target and how many million that you have to make that year or hundreds of million that you need to make that next year and where the next promotion's going to come or you know, uh, it's so easy to get caught up in that. Um, but that's the bit that doesn't satisfy the soul. Mm. And so you needed something like that 
slumdog millionaire moment to break you out of that yeah that mold and it was and it was quite confronting um if anyone's ever been to india um they'll know what india's like it's um i've traveled to lots of places around the world and, and india is definitely one of the confronting ones but when you have a little girl crying her eyes out in front of you and she's asking you to help and you just the lights change and you just drive off that's devastating mm. yeah and so now you run a volunteer tourism yeah company, company. yep Tell us about that. Post my retirement, I um, I decided to go and help a friend set up a kids' centre in one of the slums in Delhi. And as part of that process, I contacted the head of the organisation that she was going under. And um, we had an interesting conversation. And he said to me, are you free for coffee tomorrow? I said, yes. Um, and it turned out uh, that he uh, was setting up the aid organisation for the Christian rock band Newsboys. And he said, I've been looking for my CEO for the last six months and I've just found her. And I was like, oh, I don't actually want a job. But... Um, Anyway, when and when and met the guys, we um, got on well. Similar uh, DNA around um, poverty and ways to uh, address it, um, and so I uh, worked for them for a year, setting up their aid organisation in the US, um, touring with them, recruiting money, people, um, yeah, doing that, mm-hmm. and. Yeah, so then after that, and from that, there it sort of moved into just, sort of running yeah. your own company. Yeah, one taking of the people to. The slums of the world. Yeah, one of, one of the things I really enjoyed when I was working um, for this aid organisation was um, actually changing people's worldview about poverty. Um, and so you can know about it intellectually or you can see it on the news and we can get a little bit immune to it or we change channel because that picture doesn't look very attractive. Um, but actually to uh, put people right in front of other people um, that are struggling in poverty is amazing and it changes people's um, worldview. I know there's lots of different um, opinions on whether you know short-term trips or doing that sort of thing has value. In my experience, all of our volunteers have come away with and having a life-changing experience, and out of that, that's turned into something more long-term. Whether that's been child sponsorship, whether it's been changing their um, university major from business to uh, environmental issues, dealing with third-world rubbish disposal, or whether that's um, you know doing something else. So yeah, that we've seen a we've seen a lasting impact, which has been exciting. So now you work with people in the slums of the world. What sort of things have you seen? What's out there? What are we immune to here in Australia? One of the things that we take for granted in New Zealand, Australia, is the fact that we have a welfare blanket. You know that catches us when we fall through the cracks. So if we're out of work, then we can apply for you know welfare support, or if we need accommodation, then we can apply for accommodation supplement. And there are um, agencies available, government and non-government, that can assist us. Whether we necessarily choose and access them, as well as what we could do in our countries, well, that's always something for up for debate. In these countries there is no choice. Um, there is, you know, a lot of them are living on less than a dollar twenty-five US a day. So I had a coffee this morning, it was four dollars fifty. So they're living on a dollar dollar twenty five. But you know, it's basically a quarter cup of coffee and that's you know, that's food, housing, education, healthcare, that's everything and that was in that quarter cup of coffee that I drank. So to put it into that context, um, yeah, it's it, it, it is quite different. So there are there any people or experiences that you've seen particularly that resonate with you when you're, in terms of understanding 
the poor of the world? Yeah, so um, there's a family in Mexico. We go up and um, build in Mexico with a um, with an existing partner that does a really good job on the ground. Basically what Break Free Expeditions does, we recruit people and um, money and take them to existing projects that are doing a great job and we support them in whatever way we can. And often that's through um, you know, building houses because people are living in um, shacks which are probably you know a couple of metres by a couple of metres, dirt floor, uh, a bit of tarpaulin, um, maybe a few old pallets that have been pulled apart and nailed together, leaks everywhere, rats. It's really unsanitary environment and also close living, uh, very close living quarters sends people to desperation. So we built for Anna and Marco. They were in Mexico and they were living in a house pretty much what I've described. Um, and basically in a day we put them in a, in a two-bedroom house with a sleeping loft and a uh, living area. And that really turned their life around. It turned their marriage around. It turned the, um, you know, their health around. Um, you know, just having a warm, dry house is, you know, makes makes a huge difference. Um, it gave them self-esteem. Um, so next time, you know, Marcos basically the next week went out and got a job. Guess what? He's a house owner. You know, he's he's not living. You know, and the energy they have so much more energy because they're not trying to survive in this freezing, horrible shack, which we would say would be a pretty awful garden shed that needed to be pulled down. You know, so well, they yeah, use it as a garden shed now, don't they? Is that right? Yeah, the dogs. The, yeah. the dogs. It's for the dogs. Their yep. old house is now. Actually, it's quite interesting. We go and visit Anna. We say, "Oh, can we show people where you used to live?" And she goes, "Oh, I don't want to go back there. That's bad memories there." And and so that really took me by surprise. She she does doesn't actually go down um, the back where the shed was because for her that's just the worst period of her life. Yeah, I, I believe everyone has you know, basic human rights of, you know, food, water and shelter um, and education. So, you know, providing them just makes a huge difference in somebody's life. Mm. So the projects and so on that you're involved in make a big difference to people's lives? They make a huge difference. Most of them have been going from anywhere from six to about 20 years. Um, I had the privilege two weeks ago of being in Fiji and um, and a lady and her husband they were and their two grandchildren were living in a goat shed. So again... With the goats? Uh, the goats had been evicted, right. <laughs> but 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 they were they were in there. Um, the dad has um, got lymphoma, um, and there's family issues there. And so basically, if he died, she would have been destitute. So they've been able to get a home, um, you know, w- which we built for them. And we also had the privilege of watching her uh, turn on a tap and see running water come out. And oh my gosh, the look on her face was just—it's one of those memories which is. You know, in my mind, you know, a little girl on the street banging on the window. Well, this is um, this is Marzina turning on the tap and seeing running water. Phenomenal, yeah. Now, to the more cynical, perhaps they might think that it's uh, imperialistic and insensitive for foreigners to come and waltz into countries and build houses for locals. And the accusation is also that you know, you're taking jobs away from locals. How do you react to that? Okay, so I don't actually see things in terms of imperialism. I see people in terms of the person in front of me and the needs that their need is confronted. So I don't actually see you as an Aussie. To see you with oh, a right. guy with lots of needs. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, fine. Well, we'll, we'll see if this one gets to air. That's right. <laughs> it's going to hit the edit button. That's right. Um, but oh, no. You never know. Yeah, I mean, it's um, one of the one of the really important lessons that I learned in life. Um, I went to a church and there was a homeless guy that used to come up and um, take a shower, and I just used to want to keep sneaking into the um, into the bathroom and get his clothes and burn them and replace them with other ones. But you know, you can't do that. Um, but I. I found him really, really difficult to, like my initial impulse was uh, repulsion 
and I found that really difficult. I used to hate myself for it, but it, that was that was my, my initial um, reaction was. Um, and over the years, I watched other people love on him, and um, and and meet his needs in a really sensitive way, and you know, and do that. And um, and that taught me so much. It just taught, it really humbled me. So that's one of my you know little confession moments. Um, but coming back to um, you, you know the questions that that you asked um, about is it imperialistic and things. Well, I guess from if you take one viewpoint, it is. But at the other one, I mean, would you want to live in the shack that I described? Would you want to live in no, something anyone, that had a mudflap? Volunteer? Anyone? There's a, there's a resounding silence, yeah. which I think means that we don't want to live in goat sheds or yeah. dog sheds. Yeah. yeah. I've, you know, I mean, I had people say to me, um, why don't you just send the money? And um, and I've said, sure, will you front up, um, if you want to front up with the money or anyone wants to front up with the money for the costs of the trip, I'll uh, by all means deliver 100% of it, account for every dollar of it, um, and no problem, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll hire local people to build a house, well I'm yet to see the first dollar. So um, so unless people actually go, then it doesn't actually happen. Um, and also we do actually provide a lot of employment by um, providing um, volunteers that go over there. So in Mexico for example, um, we we employ 60 people behind the scenes at the lumber yard, um, you know, paint, uh, Putting down concrete, so there's a lot of employment that the goes. Volunteers need somewhere to stay as well. They need they? somewhere they, to stay. They, they need money on to and to eat. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So a lot of money is put into the local economy, and I think you really can't discount the the fact of relationship. So um, we have families that are in tears because they go, I can't believe that somebody who doesn't know me from the other side of the world has actually come here to do this for me, and uh, so that so that care and concern for our fellow man regardless and woman regardless of where they are based what their religious background is or whatever just that um, that care really is is humbling and so we're we're part of families all over the world who have received homes with no strings attached um, and they they consider us part of our family their family and we consider them part of ours um, and it's and it's really lovely the relationships that you build so it's not so much the donor recipient thing um, you would have seen Rob you've come with us haven't you to I've been, visit? To, been to two Mexico trips yep yep and right. you've visited Anna and Marco haven't you I have yes yeah, yeah. been into their house and visited other people like Veronica and Sandra and Edgar so these people these neighbours uh, not just you know, donor recipients, as you've said, they've actually become your friends. Yeah. They become people, real people in your lives. They personify what poverty is really like. When you think about, oh, the, who are the poor in the world? Well, I know, I can tell you some. I've met them. Well, the Bible verse comes from the Old Testament book of Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was writing to, to God's people, the Israelites, who were in exile. They'd had a very difficult time. They'd been defeated, captured and deported to Babylon, the most powerful nation on earth at the time. Now, things were looking very bleak for Israel and God's promises to them seemed a vain hope. But then Jeremiah writes this, and it's Jeremiah 29, uh, 10 to 11. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Now, this is actually the verse that you put on your the houses that you build in Mexico. Why is that? Okay, so we um, basically we put we put it on there um, for the families, um, so so that they can remember who who built 
the home for them. Uh, so we'll just, you know, what year it was built and, and, and what team that it was built. And we put this verse in there um, as, as a reminder to them because sometimes everyone knows life gets tough um, and they've certainly lived in a tough life. Um, and, you know, I've sort of encouraged them that, that when life is tough, they go out the front door, they have a look at the plaque, they remember that God has remembered them, they remember that God is real, they remember that he has plans for them and plans not to harm them, plans to give them a hope and a future. And for um, and for some of the families that we that we don't, um, you know, that, that aren't Christian, because it doesn't matter who we build for anyone, um, if they need a home, we'll, be, we'll build for them. Um, so the cool thing that, that I encourage those families is that, you know, um, God's already got plans for them. And the really cool verse in um, verse 22, when it goes on, you know, plans to give you hope in a future, then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. So just encouraging them that, you know, when they go out there and they see that yes, God remembered them and has plans for them and has built them a home. They don't know what's going to happen on in the future, but you know what? They remember where their help comes from and that's God and to really encourage them to you know speak out and ask God to help them in those times of need. And so that's 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 one of the reasons that we put that um that we put them put that on the door for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so what else do you make of that verse? How else does it inspire you? How else does that inspire me? Yeah. Well, uh, personally, or or for the uh, or for the oh, both. Yeah. oh from both. Um, I think. Um, how does that inspire me? I think it's really exciting that actually God um, has plans for us, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think um, you know, and and their and their plans, you know, not you know to give us a hope and a future and not to harm us. And I think that that's um, something in our everyday life that um, that sometimes we can forget. We might forget that we might think that our world's just become a little bit too small. Um, but when we we remember that that verse that God has got good plans for us, um, then that's very encouraging. But then, as I say, onto the onto the second. Um, verse which is you know then you will come and call on me and God's already said he's got plans for you he's just asking for us to to reach out and call on and and so so that would be the that would be an encouragement for myself and for everyone I think that yep God's got it sorted. I mean, it's also important to remember the original context in which this was given, which was to the the nation of Israel, the people of God, when they were were actually suffering dramatically. They were away from the the promised land. They were exiled. They'd been defeated. They'd been captured. The promises that they had received seemed as though they had come to nothing. Things were looking pretty bleak, and yet there's a confidence here that well, God is actually going to look after them. And it's interesting that He actually tells them to build houses. Which is uh, interesting for a, a house building, you know, someone yeah. who does houses, you know, settle down and actually realise that, well, the promises will come, but you just need to wait. But we also say that there's a, probably a similarity for those particularly, you know, who are in poverty. They're suffering, they're going through a difficult time. There are, is a hope and a future. Sometimes we might not see that in this life, but there is a future hope as well through the death and resurrection of Jesus that regardless of your situation in life, how bad life may be or the, the poverty that you're experiencing or the difficulties, that there is a future hope that transcends mm. all of that. Yeah. Actually, you were telling me a really interesting story earlier about a guy who'd spent some time in Auschwitz. Um, Auschwitz. Yeah. Yes. Viktor Frankl, who talked about hope, the power of hope. He wrote a very powerful book. And in the book, he describes the power of hope, that those who don't have hope were the first to die. Even though someone was still physiologically fine, if they gave up hope, they were dead. And so it was the power of hope, I suppose. And this is what this passage is in many respects offering to a a nation of Israel that seems as though everything has gone wrong. There is hope. And I suppose also something that you've touched on as well with what you do with Mexico and other places, that there is this future hope as well, which you can benefit from and and trust in. Yeah, yeah, well summed up. Yeah, thank you.
Now, we do have a couple of questions from our live audience here today. And the first is, Diana, I love your story. I love to hear what you're doing. Really interested to hear about your work in Mexico. But how do you choose the project that you take on board? Okay, so there's a couple of things. One um, is that I'm, I'm involved with our partner selection and in our partner selection we choose projects that are, um, or partners that are doing a really good job on the ground currently. They've got a really good track record, corruption's not an issue, we have good relationship, we have a, we have a similar uh, DNA as to how we um, see things happening um, and then we, we basically serve them. We bring people and we bring money and we, and we do, do, do what, um, what's asked, so our expectations from both sides are well managed. So you're, you're working with people who are already on the ground, local people who know the area, who know what the needs are, and you facilitate them basically. Absolutely. So if someone receives a home, that's because um, our partner has uh, pre-selected them and, uh, and there's certain criteria that go there. So we're not just coming in going, oh, that'd be good because, you know, how do you know that that's, that's not the best place for it to be? Yeah. Now another question's come in and it's a slightly longer one. Diana, thank you for sharing with us today. A broader question, if I may, on a more global perspective. And we constantly hear the gap between rich and poor widening. We hear statistics like the top 2% of income earners own more than the bottom 30% in the world, and the amount of poverty in the world is increasing. Now, all these are very pessimistic reports. From your perspective, and you are doing wonderful work addressing these issues, but on a confined scale, are you optimistic or pessimistic? about the way the world is going in terms of confronting the issue of poverty. Okay, so um, Mother Teresa is probably the best uh, example of that one. She, you know, people asked her how does she deal with the massive poverty and she said, I just look at the person in front of me and I do that. I think part of Break Free Expeditions is that, um, you know, we, what, what we're looking to do is change a person's worldview on poverty. Now. Um, I'm just changing maybe 400 people, maybe you know, you know, over a, a few years. But those 400 people are being impacted, and then they're changing their world. So you kind of get the cumulative, uh, you know, effect um, going. We um, we do take some schools with us, some New Zealand state schools up to Mexico, and I really encourage them to be, um, you know, history makers. You know, in terms of, and when you're sitting in a room with, um, oh, I had a school recently. It was a private school, semi-private. Um, boys school and they had the cream other schools just anybody can come but the, for this one they, they had their top performing leaders um, and honestly sitting in that room is you know like in 10-20 years time there was a room full of history makers and to, and to have this world changing experience for them now is actually going to be have huge global impact for us. Information has increased, reporting's increased uh, people with vested interests certainly get onto the platform and go for it and there, there have been changes Changes. Like in the um, slum that I've been working in in uh, Mexico over the last seven years, we've seen huge change. Um, any, any of our projects that we've seen, we've seen huge change. And that will probably be the same for any of the big um, organisations that, that do humanitarian work. You know, World Vision, Compassion, Tear Fund, you know, all of those ones, you know, um, just to name a few, child, whatever child fund. Yeah, they, they, they would see huge progress in those ones. So is there hope? in the slums of the world. But I think the whole idea is building relationships, so it's not what you mentioned, the imperial, here we go, cargo cult type mentality. It's, um, it's a, you know, giving people the basic needs of life, but also encouraging them to get on to actually um, be able to look after themselves. Yeah. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, is there hope in the slums of the world? From Jeremiah 29. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. 
plans to give you hope and a future. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guest today, Diana Judge. Enjoy Bigger Questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash biggerquestions.